Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, hello. Welcome to episode 34. This will be the last episode for 2018. So I hope you enjoy it. We will take a break over the next few weeks and we will come back in late January 2019 to start the new season of Data Futurology. So far, we have been running for about seven months, and I really wanted to thank you for listening to the podcast and joining us on our journey to date. In today's episode, we speak with Sally Grove. Sally is the general manager of Insights at the Australian Motoring Services. Before starting there, she amazingly took a year off work and she tells us a little bit about that during the interview and before that she spent about 10 years in banking working in large banks in fraud analytics having lots of heads of positions and getting really interesting learnings throughout during the interview sally tells us about her story where how she got to where she is now and what are the lessons learned from which we can all learn from and become better professionals. I hope that you enjoy the interview. Thanks again for listening to the podcast and we will see you again in January 2019. Sounds far away when you say it like that, but it's actually just next month. Enjoy your end of year breaks and see you again in a few weeks. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, this is Felipe Flores and today I'm speaking with Sally Grove. How are you doing? Good, Felipe. How are you? Yeah, good. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for been having me. Been looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And thanks for um, having me at your office. This is very nice. So at the beginning, I wanted to ask you, how did you get started in the data space? What did your journey look like at the beginning? Yeah, so I wasn't really looking to get into the data space. I think like a lot of people probably 10 years ago, kind of got out of a degree in mathematical physics and was wondering what to do next. And I think a lot of the advice is kind of going to accountancy or going to teaching. Those didn't really appeal to me at the start of time. So um, I looked for jobs that, that had the kind of prerequisite of maths and worked with a, a graduate recruitment company, the Graduate Recruitment Bureau. And they don't, so they specialize in, in jobs for entry level jobs into organizations, not in for the graduate um, schemes like the big companies have more just entry level jobs. And mm-hmm. I found myself getting a job at a bank in fraud analytics. So I started off, so that got me into essentially the the banking industry um, and then also the analytics industry. So I worked in the card fraud area, so responsible for identifying the fraudulent card transactions, so credit cards or debit cards um, out of the genuine ones. So if you've ever had a phone call from your bank or a text message from your bank saying, did you make these transactions? We were the ones that were writing the rules to identify them. 
So it's quite an exciting space to be in. Yeah. I probably didn't realize it at the time, but a kind of a good entry role to analytics because you get exposure to all the life cycle of analytics, really. So you, you kind of were identifying what the problem was. So when the fraud happened, to then finding what the solution was, writing the, the model, to then implementing it in production and then monitoring it. So you had to kind of get it right because you had the ability to essentially decline every single transaction someone was making on their card. So a bit of pressure there, but great exposure and kind of, yeah, didn't appreciate the luxury at the time that you got the whole life cycle. Man in one day often, so you could be going from a new fraud attack to writing a rule in the system and monitoring it. And it's feedback as well. So you'd be getting uh, fraudulent transactions declines um, on generally like the, the false positive kind of ratios then and there compared to kind of further down the line when I was working credit cards, you could be like two years before you know the success of or something else, you know, if someone's responded to a campaign, but was the campaign as what you expected can take like two years to kind of did it make money? Um, yes. Whereas this was instant kind of often in a day. So I look for you in some ways. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, you get tight feedback loops and and doing the end-to-end, which is fantastic. How was that first job that you had? How was it different to what you expected or what you thought it might be? Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing I remember was just how unorganized and unstructured working environments seem to be. You go, go from the, I was always in academia before, so um, going from uni from where you're kind of, you're hypothesizing, you're writing papers, you're structuring it, it's all kind of detailed, all documented. You go into the working environment and nothing's documented. Yeah. <laughs> and, Kind of, it's kind of some peer review checks, but kind of loose often and just like straight there with the responsibility. So kind of scary in some ways that you can think, oh, is there not like a hierarchy where you're reviewing? And obviously there's something there, but it's like, <laughs> I'm just a grad. I can uh, <laughs> put rules in. So yeah, that was probably, probably a bit of a, a shock to the system, but exciting too. It was kind of fun to be working rather than like you're, you're earning money to have fun earning money rather than spending money doing the studies. So yeah, I enjoyed the working. It means you enjoy it as yeah. well. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's kind of the real data rather than theory and nice polished data sets or polished problems where the solution's already known because you're kind of just answering questions and then it's really that people know. Now, I didn't do research. It was always kind of set problems, so you're kind of learning more of the techniques. Yes. Where you go into business, the kind of the you're having to find the problems, work with the live kind of data and real things. When there's actually a real mm. thing impacting the real world, it's a lot more exciting. And how did you start to balance the research and the business value? How far to take projects or how much work to do from a technical perspective versus how much yep. work could or should be done to get the business value? Right. In fraud, you kind of you have to. If, if there was an immediate thing, you need to put a rule in to, to stop the fraud. You kind of have to be quick and respond. You can't mm. kind of wait for a long time to put in and make sure everything's perfect because um, you could have had lots of losses, lost lots of money in that meantime. So you kind of, the speed kind of was a control that you kind of limited the research. But then equally, because you are putting things into the real world environment, you kind of have to be accurate. So I kind of now play with the 80-20 rule. Kind of it's easy to, you don't have to be perfect, get something out there, get it okay and get it learning and get it working um, and learn from it. But in fraud, you kind of have to be a little bit more 95 rather than 80-20 because you say so you, you do have the ability to decline everyone's transaction so that's where the monitoring it making sure it's kind of okay and the compromise between speed to execution but then also not impacting the customer experience I would say now is the it's the best um, obviously bias but the best people come from a risk kind of operational background because you learn to be accurate you kind of the check double check triple check how else can I validate that this is okay because my head could be on the line if kind of if we've brought any systems down so I think yes other people I've seen from that kind of industry kind of have that quality checking whereas a lot of people if you've always been in the 80 20 space which has great other skills with it 
but people kind of can forget to kind of the check at each end point of the code. And it's so easy to make a mistake in a little thing like a comma or an and or something goes wrong and it doesn't, it's not there. But fraud makes you kind of check each step of the rule, kind of on the model. Let's see what we can do. And how did you find banking as an industry when you first encountered it? I think probably my experience of banking has probably changed over the time. I think the, the more junior you are, the less you're exposed to kind of the business strategy, the mm. politics and everything that goes on. So the early days, it was I had no kind of experience probably of other kind of industries. So That makes sense. It was the first industry, so it didn't know any different. And it was at the junior levels. So yeah, you're not exposed to the tougher problems around strategy and politics. And so then after being... How long were you in fraud in the end? So did three years in fraud in the UK and then I moved to Australia and did, did two years here and then moved to the, the product side. So I think the experience is there whilst you're yeah, kind of more junior, kind of less exposure to the politics and the business strategy. Also in risk, in, in risk, you kind of felt siloed. You kind of like physically we were siloed in a different area um, of the business in Australia anyway. And you kind of, you're stopping money going out of the organization. It's kind of, it's almost like a lose-lose situation. You do a really good job, write some good kind of rules and have good customer experience and no one's complaining and you're stopping the fraud so you're not losing that much money but no one really knows about it because you're kind of just like a silent person there yes you do a bad job or not solely a bad job just something kind of happens and everyone will know about it and you get the pressure on you so risk is kind of it's uh, can be a quiet existence or it can be a, a full pressure <laughs> environment and then when you get to the, the product side and you're making money for the bank you're mm. um, a revenue generating area there's more exposure so you're kind of within the business you get exposure to the the different areas marketing product development projects kind of areas the different product areas so there's a lot more exposure so you get kind of more exposure to what, what happens in a banking space as well. And then kind of higher up the ladder for one of a better speak, you kind of go, the more experience you, you exposure, you kind of get to the politics kind of that happens in terms of the, the financial targets kind of, they have, they grow each year. You have to meet them no matter how it's the regulation environment is changing. There's more pressures. Um, customer experiences are getting higher, but you kind of better keep meeting the higher demands and the kind of selling the value of kind of the analytics and what we should be doing versus other salesmen in the, the area. Yes. So when you moved into the product side, what products were you working with and how was that experience? Yeah, so doing various restructures. I think kind of we've had transaction accounts, personal loans and credit cards. So credit cards was probably the, the main one that we focus on, consumer credit cards. And so the kind of the, the life cycle of that, so the acquisition of credit cards, the portfolio, how people are using it. Product development, kind of exposure to the new technologies like um, uh, con- uh, tap and pay, nab pay, the tapping your phone pricing elements, what fees and rates do you charge? So when you're getting closer to the business on the product side, how did you start to sell the value of analytics? How were you able to get people excited about using analytics on the on, for, for the business? Part of me is lucky. So I, I started off in the team as a senior analyst and then got promoted to manager and then heading up the team. So I had exposure over the, like my manager previously doing a lot of the sales job for that. So I kind of had it easy in some ways because I was kind of riding his wave. Yeah. And the team was quite good in that they, they realized that's in the, the wider team. So we had an analytics function within the product house. So you had a personal loan product team, a, a credit card team, and they were kind of data driven people. So they would ask the questions or kind of what was needed in terms of the analysis. Some ways you didn't need to necessarily sell it in that because the demand was there. It's probably the, the usual kind of problems of what questions they're asking, not necessarily what they should be asking and the influencing of what, what the questions that the problem that should be that they're answering is probably more the sales job that we had to do. And as well as teaching my team as well to make sure they're asking the questions and not just be obliging and help people out with the questions is make sure they challenge them and, and get the right questions as well. So yeah, the selling of it was more the right question 
questions or the right things that we should be looking at. Educating the yeah. stakeholders. So that's really interesting because you were educating the stakeholders, but also getting your team to do the same. What was your process in doing those two sides? How would you help the stakeholders get to the right type of question to ask in yeah. their situation? Yeah, I think part of it is kind of having the someone kind of puts in a request and we had kind of a system where you kind of lodge it in SharePoint and then yours at the time, put in the question, but asking some questions of why they need it and what it's for. So trying to draw out the initial why in those. But then once you kind of got the, the online kind of form request, you sit with the requester and really understand what they're wanting, kind of more understanding the business problem behind it to help me kind of really understand what, what the why is. And then talk through, well, I know you've asked for this, but will what kind of this do as well? Or do you want this? And then sometimes it can be worked out in those kind of conversations and kind of get buy-in of what the actual kind of mock-up of what the output should be other times it can be kind of actually you've asked for x i'm going to give you x but i'm also going to give you y i think if they've asked for something and adamant they want it and if it doesn't take long effort to do it they might as well do that as a byproduct of what you think they want as well so then it kind of keeps them happy and if it is really what they want they've still got it but then you've also got wider kind of piece of insights that you can show them because what you think the real kind of problem is yeah, and you have some goodwill to say you got what you wanted and also... Yeah, you don't want to make them unhappy by not providing it. It's like, well, you just haven't listened to me. And it's like, still, I've listened to you, but I also kind of think this as well. What do you think? Yes, and lead with the work. That's really good. So how long were you in the product side for? Five years in total in the product space. Yeah. It kind of seems like a long time in hindsight, but it's being such a varied team was kind of easy to stay excited i'm pretty happy as, as i'm kind of constantly learning and kind of each time i was trying to get into the, the end of the right probably ready for something new kind of yeah. like get something new and whether that was a technical kind of learning something new and moving from say uh, looking at credit cards to then looking at tra- transaction accounts or learning how a different product works or kind of moving from senior analyst to manager and, and kind of head up with kind of the different soft skills of, of learning and then also you, in the product space you get a- exposure to different areas of kind of the analytics are kind of like the pricing the marketing and the product so it's kind of it's, it's quite varied so it's kind of like biased in, in hindsight that it's um such a great team to work in because you get kind of exposure to the whole life cycle plus in the customer experience as well and the pain points and what people see and the nps kind of scores as well you're kind of a team that does quite a lot of varied things so it's, it's an exciting space to be yeah because you're moving across so many different dimensions as in like the responsibilities around the roles the functions and the product sort of like a 3d space to yeah. play in yeah so yeah in hindsight we could have stayed well could have definitely stayed and learned more because there's always more to learn in that space i think but it was just time for me to move on in the end i think and, yeah. and what did you do when you left that's a good question i um <laughs> i went traveling so yeah, I, I decided from a personal point of view that 10 years in banking was probably long enough and I didn't have um, no kids and no mortgage. It was a good time to kind of leave and you want to get to the age of retirement and go, what have I done? So um, 100%. Yeah, I went traveling, went to South America, North America, and then back to England for a couple of months with family. And um, when people do long trips, there's always the question, which I don't think is the right question at all. Like people always want to know about that, the highlights or your, yeah. your favorite spots, right? But what are some of the memories that you carry with you still from that trip? Some of the... Yeah, I think in North America, we hired a camper van from LA and drove it for I think about 20 days um, doing a loop through the national parks, ending up in San Fran and just kind of the the freedom, the kind of relax, just what do we do today? And then the beautiful views that you're seeing everywhere. It was just awesome. So just in Perth last week, I had a long weekend there and some of the national parks were there kind of gives us back memories and you're like, oh, we should do it again. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. What's wrong with just quitting now and doing it again? But, I know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm the same. <laughs> 
So around the national parks in, in California, but they're beautiful. Yeah, Yosemite, Death Valley, Bryce Canyon. Yes, awesome just there. Have you been? I have not been into the national parks. I've been to, to San Fran in LA, but if, like I've heard amazing, amazing things. But it's just, and Yosemite is so famous and huge apparently. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yosemite's kind of got everything. You kind of, it's like, the, it's got the, the water, it's got the rocks and kind of the, the forests and kind of things. It's, it's got, yeah, different aspects of bears. The bears, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say. <laughs> so it's a good kind of picture postcard kind of, well, they all are really. So a lot of people would love to do that take a career break and go traveling for a long time. What do you think stops most people? Oh, I always wonder what stops people. <laughs> yeah. I often been the um didn't know how people could find it hard to use up their annual leave. <laughs> and when I'm like, well, <laughs> twenty days is not much. I don't know if it's the fear factor of the um like I'm losing my job, what will happen. I mean when I told people, because I, I didn't just up and quit my job. I, I think I left in June last year and I told my boss in Jan Feb time, I think, and I gave him the heads up, this is what I'm looking to do. To you know, give him time as this was happening. And yeah. luckily he didn't get rid of me then and there. <laughs> I still um, carried on working. Didn't tell everyone until kind of later when they didn't want to cause too much disruption within the team. And it was telling people, it was kind of everyone was kind of jealous and was like, oh, I wish I was doing that. I wish I could do that. There's only really one person that went, what are you doing? You're leaving a good job <laughs> in a good company. I'm like, oh, yeah, just have to. So I think obviously it's not for everyone. If you've got financial commitments or family commitments, then obviously it's not just as easy to up and leave. But I kind of live life by no regrets. So like, what's the worst that can happen? Luckily, I was in a good position financially and and family-wise. And my partner had long service leave as well. So he didn't have to quit. He could just take that and and some other leave and and have a long break. It worked well for me, but it's kind of, I'd definitely do it again. And I think kind of lucky in this industry as well that there will be jobs about. Yes. Whether that's kind of like I did a bit of contracting before I um, I got my current job just because I wanted to take the time to find the right next role. But again, lucky I was kind of in that position where I could take a bit of time and, and kind of fell into a contracting position that was doing some credit card analytics. So it was <laughs> kind of back into my safety comfort zone and I could kind of do it without really thinking. So yeah, but I think, yeah, my advice definitely is um just do it. You learn so much, I think, by exposure to different cultures, different environments. And for me as well, just the relaxation kind of part of it as well from being, I think, 10 years in banking in the last couple of years, kind of more the leadership and the kind of high pressure um, sometimes in terms of the, the role that you can get with the leadership roles. It was kind of nice just to kind of reset and just look after myself. I think if I have probably one regret from time working in the bank was probably too much time working on the bank rather than working on me. It, it did help me learn and by doing the work, you're still kind of learning. But it's kind of, it gets to the point when if you're doing kind of just stuff that's repetitive and you're not really learning, it's doing the late hours to hit this task or because someone high up there has asked a question that they don't really need to ask, but you need to answer it now. And then it's kind of when it's, and you're not then necessarily getting the exposure and the, the credit that you or the team needs. And it becomes more about a to-do list. It's not mm. that fun. And you start working the long hours for not getting, when the payback for me is not there. So now kind of having the relaxation and kind of coming into the new role and it's kind of making sure that I don't forget the role and kind of still obviously meeting targets and objectives and working with the team but making sure kind of I'm I'm developing on myself as well and learning new skills or reading articles reading books and things like that it's kind of it's easy to get it was easy for me anyway to get in the trap at, at NAB and kind of just working for the business rather than working for me 
That's a really great realization, actually, to make sure that you're depositing back into your bank account. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah. Like professional I think bank it, I probably got in the bank. Got in, yeah, the bank withdrew too much for me in the end, and it was a uh, time to go. I mean, I deposited yeah. lots in the meantime as well. I had Definitely. a great time, and it supported me and developed me. And I wouldn't be here where I was without all the people, really, and the support and help that that they gave me. And were you tempted to stay overseas during your travels at any point? I thought about it, probably because being English, um, so I'm English, my, my partner's English. We met over here, though, so our kind of friendship networks in Melbourne, but both of our families are, are back in England, so there's always a family to pull. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I spent Christmas over there and, and kind of looked at the, the job market and the job seemed like there's more, more jobs in London, Leeds and Edinburgh, but I don't really want to work in London. I would probably want to work closer to family. If the reason going back is closer to family, then. Yeah. So it just wasn't really the right time, I don't think. I'm kind of, at the end of the day, we both like it here. So I might as well stay here a little longer. The industry that we're in is really good in, in Melbourne at the moment. The salary is yeah. a bit better as well. So good. if there's no need to go back just yet, then why? Yeah. That's great. Did you have people before you left? Did you have people saying, come back, make sure you come back? I think the more people had bets that I wasn't going to come back. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think that the family card yeah. in England. But no, I think well, yeah, they're pretty supportive. That's such a good idea to come back and do some contracting while you look for the right role. Because mm-hmm. then that definitely takes the, the pressure off. Did your partner go back to his old company? He did, yes. Um, so he came back a bit earlier than I did because he didn't have as long off. So he mm. came back in November and I came back January. He's actually moved roles now, moved companies. But yeah, he kind of came back and moved stages. And what were you looking for for your next role or during the time that you had off? What were you thinking that would be a good next stage for you in your career? So I was looking to get out of banking, more just because I'd always worked in banking. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know what it was like elsewhere than any particular problems with banking. I'm looking to move in a smaller company where kind of less kind of politics. Um, can you just get the job done and try and make more changes quickly? Um, looking for some where they took data seriously. And so you had buy-in from the CEO and support there. And like where where kind of the industry or the product kind of excited me and I had some influence and sway. And so luckily I think I found that in kind of the current company and it's a small company when you've got kind of three different main pillars. So the rewards aspect of the loyalty scheme, a travel kind of component with the travel insurance, my roadside assistance. So it's probably never looking to go into roadside assistance is a big part of it, but it's um it's new for me and so that kind of excites me and the, the opportunities we can have in that space. And what does the CEO support look like in practice? Because I've heard that a lot of people sometimes get frustrated that they say, well, they find that sometimes CEO or direction from the top might say the right words. And as in like, yes, we want data. Data is key. But then the actions sometimes don't match the rhetoric. So what, what does it look like in practice in terms of what does good look like? Oh, I was supposed to the I caveat it with being I'm only in four months in, so I yeah. hope that it continues <laughs> as it has. But for me, that is any roadblockers kind of helping me out, kind of whether it's funding or whether it's people and, and kind of having those conversations to kind of get buy-in in terms of the strategy. Mm. So at the moment, I'm kind of in the early stages of kind of three months in, kind of doing the diagnostic of where we are, what, what are the, the, the strengths and the, the weakness opportunities to kind of build out what, what the strategy is. So hopefully, if he's listening, <laughs> it's kind of buy-in, I think. So it's my responsibility to paint that picture of what, what the data strategy, the analytics strategy should be for the business and what we can do with it. So I'm in the early stages of that um, and 
kind of tackling that by kind of do some kind of quick wins and small improvements so that avoid having the microscope on me at the moment because if you can he's kind of the person that you can see that you're going to do a good job and making improvements and kind of don't need as much focus but is there to um very supportive that i can have a chat if we kind of need to walk through a problem but other than that can leave me be and kind of let me do my thing which is great because it's there when i need but i can not be micromanaged and kind of do do what i want as well and that's kind of the support that what it, it means to me is kind of if i need some help to help educate others he's kind of got my back but also let me kind of shape it as well that's really yeah. great and how are you going about creating the data strategy yes yeah, still Still early days. Yeah. And so the, my initial kind of thoughts is how can we make use of what we have today? So I think we, we're getting a lot of data in that we're not using to its optimal capability. What can we do with what we have today and kind of uplift what we're doing? Then I'll be thinking about what are the external kind of data sets we may want to incorporate or how may we want to expand the current data sets. A lot of the data sets that we have at the moment are from other businesses. We're currently a B2B company, so we get data from other companies. The teams mainly at the moment mean we get data in and we get data out and it's been a, a kind of a BI data management kind of team using mainly to make sure the business runs smoothly rather than we've got this data, what can we do with it? So it's understanding what can we do with it now to then write what do we actually want to do and do we have the data and do we need to amend what we are getting and then what kind of the new ones we want then there's the the system wise so it's we're on-prem at the moment and it's working okay because predominantly what we need it for we're not really pushing it to its limits but is that going to be fit for, for us in the future so there's kind of understanding that at the moment because I think no doubt it'll get to the stages where we need to business case and articulate the pros and cons. Do we stay on-prem? Do we move to the cloud? What's the benefits? And articulating potentially future use of it. So the future demand by if we do more analytics and models, there's going to be more grunt, which then do we have what we want? If we get more data, is it going to take maintenance backup longer on-prem, speed on the cloud and things like that? And and it may be yeah. that it's um it's actually on-prem's okay, but it's mm. kind of are we make sure we review it so that we understand it's getting the future readiness to move along with what we want rather than getting read being getting uplifting the capability skill sets in the team and then not being ready yes so how can we move the two how are you balancing the long-term strategy build versus a uh, tactical short-term wins that i'm asking because i'm i'm in that yeah. dilemma <laughs> at the moment right so yeah just started a new job less than three weeks ago so i think this is a, the start of week three for me and I naturally tend to wanting to prove value quickly, provide value quickly. And while I'm sort of putting, still putting together that strategy and trying to be patient enough to understand the organization, their maturity, yep. their pace and way of working and everything. How do you balance the yep. quick wins versus yeah. strategy? Probably, before I answer that, I probably yeah. had a third one in there is also balancing the letting the team grow and develop and teaching them to do it rather than the tendency for me to jump in and do it as well. Yes. And that yes that is an awesome point yeah i think it's a constant battle it's going from being stuck in the business or on the dance floor versus on the balcony working on the business it's kind of the balance and i've probably spending a lot more time on the quick wins and doing things because it's, it's hard isn't it? as you, you see the opportunities the excitement oh we can do this it's great and then doing it and people getting excited too but it's then realizing that if we just keep doing the small quick wins then it's not actually going to develop 
the bigger the strategy. So it's it goes in cycles. In some ways, I'm kind of lucky by the nature of the job requires me to travel a bit interstate. Uh-huh. So that also kind of gives reflection time as well, because when you're kind of doing the traveling, it's I'm not necessarily coming into the day to day office and getting stuck in the trap. But it is it's kind of a conscious effort that I have to make because the, the to do list kind of grows and it's starting to get to the stage where you may say, no, we can't do something to work on the bigger picture. So at the moment, we're working on enhancing the self serve analytics Seems predominantly in the past been doing a lot of ad hoc with questions. So we, we work on a B2B business mm. and so we have external clients and it's providing kind of insights packs for them. So you kind of do an ad hoc kind of this is what's going on in your portfolio. But that takes time and it can take, say, up to two weeks kind of just to understand what's going on in that portfolio and, and present it. Whereas I think a lot of it can be automated so we can get do that self-serve for the account managers can get those numbers, which would then free up the team's time to kind of do more, well, what's really going on and yes. not just the high level kind of stats, but like what's going on, why is it going on and can we provide them some recommendations so you have to kind of take the time to build the capability to do that so it's instead of say taking two weeks to build what an ad hoc insights pack it's going to be say a month or so to kind of build a whole suite of self-serve things but in this so it's longer in this short-term pain for the long-term gain and it's luckily i think i've got buy-in from the stakeholders that we can kind of see where we want to go and again it's not kind of building the whole self-serve suite and then showing them at the end of it it's kind of i've taken kind of a, a three-step approach is kind of one is just uplift what we we currently have mm-hmm. small things from just making it look good so just getting a style guide in from our color scheme and themes and everything looks the same rather than using as many colors as you can and, and things so just uplift current capability yes that gives them we can showcase what we've got and hopefully make some quick wins in that space but also then kind of show the capability of what can be done because often when, when people kind of haven't seen the likes of um, the data visualization power bi tableau etc they kind of just want spreadsheets so it's kind of educating what what is available by showing some initial insights and then workshopping with them now you've seen this what else do you want what are your current pain points what do your your clients ask you for on a, a daily basis what takes you a long time to do to then build a kind of prioritization framework or future dashboards and then build measure learn repeat kind of cycle of them so it's working with them as well in a kind of trying to get the instant or not often hard to get the instant feedback with stakeholders when they want something they want it now but when they want when when we need them to provide feedback it's it's not uh, they're hard to find yeah (laughs) yeah Yes. Yeah, so that's the, um, I can't remember what your initial question was, but no. no. So you were saying about your your three-part plan or first step, uplifting the current capability. Yep, then second step is workshop with the business. And then three step is iterating, build, measure, and repeat um, to kind of get the self-serve up there. And then it frees up hopefully more time to do the advanced analytics. So I think that was part of the question to Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And essentially in that journey, how important is it for your strategy to be able to see how people use the dashboards in their self-service manner to track, essentially being able to see how they interact with it, what filters and knobs they move and what things they look at versus not look at? Is that something that is important? Yeah, I think it, it's almost like the UX kind of side to the role. It's hard in the learning development of the, the team at the moment. It's like from the simple things of just getting it looking good, as I was saying before, kind of having it something look good, it's easier to get used. Uh, more likely to get used and that's from the the kind of the look and order like the order of the kind of the filters that you can have mm-hmm. um or even just the names of the filters so it is important to track i don't think necessarily we're, we're tracking it as well as we could do at the moment down to the actual kind of individual kind of parts of the page it's kind of looking at it in the context if it's not being used is it something wrong with what's what's there well, there's likely to be something wrong or it's the awareness people don't know it's there but if it's also it's the awareness it means it's not as intuitive as it should be so it's kind of what needs to be tweaked mm-hmm. and so it's the trying to sit with the business to understand 
how they're, they're using it as well and, and kind of shadow them. So we're kind of going into that stage at the moment. Yeah. We've historically kind of been, what do you want to build? This is what it is, build it, and then just set and forget. We're trying to change that mentality to it's the constant iterative use of it and kind of the also eliciting the feedback as well is kind of, oh, why aren't you clicking on that button or what you know that's there? And use it. it is important to track because I think, one, you can also, if people are using something a lot as well, it's why it's so good about that one. So how can we prioritize the development of the, the next kind of insights from that one as well? And another one that I'm muddling my way through at the moment, yeah. I guess, is having tasks that are necessary to do, but that may not sit directly in the skill set of the existing team. So for example, I don't know that the skills of the people you inherited, but say if you inherited that a scientist and then getting them to do a reporting, like a self-service reporting dashboard, whether that means to start a new team to focus on the self-service reporting and have the existing team focus on the analytics or the data science. How do you manage that? What are your thoughts at the moment? Generally, how I've structured teams in the past and kind of currently, I've just actually restructured the team yesterday and it's kind of vertically and, and horizontally. So the horizontal kind of component probably touches on what, what you're asking there in terms of the breadth being the breadth of the product functions that they could cover and also the breadth of the technologies. And so it's kind of everyone should be able to touch everything. So the breadth being kind of in, in the current kind of state, it's the loyalty, travel, roadside assistance. Anyone should be able to answer a question on, on any of the tasks. Then also the breadth of the skill sets is, is I think, a, a foundational layer to data science where everyone should kind of know. I read an analogy the other day that it's kind of like medicine. So if you're learning medicine, everyone does the same degree and then they start to specialize so they kind of have a good foundational knowledge of everything. I think data science is like that too. There's always going to be a need to manipulate data, integrate data, build dashboards, do the models, but then people specialize in different areas. And I think we probably in a similar to me where you've got a small team, so we don't have the luxury of a big team that we can go, well, well we've got a priority model we need to build so I know I can go to this person or this team. It's all hands on deck. I kind of have the view that you should be able to ask anyone anything and it's um, the flexibility to adapt. And then there's because there are different than specialities, is some people may need a little bit more help and time on the aspects versus if you give it to the person that's specialised in it, it's quicker and more autonomous. But the, the nature of working in a small business is, means that the ebbs and flows of the business, there can be a time when there's more needs for report build, say there are for, for models, and so it's kind of all hands on deck, I think. The part of the, the challenges in our space is the expectations of future data scientists. It's, it's kind of got this sexy name at the yeah. moment and yeah. like people kind of think they can go into an organization, I'm always going to be a model, it's going to be great. They don't really care about getting the data, manipulating the data or even monitoring it after it's gone in. Correct. But you've got to be able to do all parts. It's not a, you can't pick and choose. <laughs> A hundred percent. Like somebody um, the other day was saying, they go, oh, you know, it's true what they say that the majority of the data scientist time is in getting and preparing data. And I said, well, yes, that's true if your endpoint is building the model. But if your endpoint is taking it into production and, you know, revisiting and improving it and having it out there in the wild, then your data preparation might still be the biggest piece, but it's nowhere near 50%. Or more, right? So it's yep. the expectation of the work to be done is a really good point, and especially over the ebbs and flows of the business. What do you think in your case, what do you think prepared you to have that perspective of that it's a whole lineup of skills that are required in different intensities at different times? Was that that came, was that something that came from like early fraud days in your case, because you had the end to end visibility there? Was it something that you developed as you were getting more senior, getting into like manager and heads of role? Yeah, probably a bit of both. 
I think the the starting off in, in the fraud space where you're covering kind of the life cycle of it, you kind of always done that. So yeah. it's kind of what I learned and kind of you're responsible for it. So it's kind of it's, it's within your kind of almost DNA because you've kind of learned that. And then naturally as, as being a people leader and you've only got the finite team that you can do things, even kind of working at now but at a bank in a bigger organization with more analytics teams, but I've only got my team. And so it's you've still got to manage the resources. And it's probably also the experience of how we're lucky to have some good people leaders as well. And so how they've managed the team as well and just inheriting that aspect and so is the, the other aspect of the kind of the structure as, as touching on is the vertical kind of aspect of the structure being the yeah. depth of, of skill sets as well and, and the other aspects which is how Sarah kind of probably inherited how I managed the team from my experiences of how I was managed and it's the a task that's given could be given to anyone so from a graduate entry level person to the most senior person in the team so for example if it's um, we need to build a new attrition model a graduate could do that or the senior person or I could do that for example the difference being is the amount of support that someone needs and the amount of time that they will take a graduate will take longer and need more support whereas a, a senior person can do it more autonomously everyone should always get support i think because you learn better with more heads than one but it's the so it's not just getting stuck in across all kind of aspects it's kind of the anyone can do anything as well and yeah i think and how does that work when the team grows gets bigger yeah, I think because you have both the, the matrix of kind of the breadth of things that you expect people to work on, both in the technical skills and the product functions or the, the business streams of the areas you've got to look after, as well as then kind of the different tasks someone can do, there's, there always seems to be enough to kind of someone hasn't learned in a different area to kind of keep people excited, as well as then I suppose the softer kind of skills in terms of the presentation skills, indirect people leadership kind of aspects mm. as well. So as the team grows in, in maturity and kind of as they've, they've been there longer, it's kind of there's, there should be hopefully always something that's something new to someone. As the team grows physically in terms of number of people, it's kind of having the right structure, I suppose, for the, the more layers. I think a lot of organizations are going removing the layers. I kind of like having a little bit of hierarchy because it kind of helps with the just managing the prioritization of tasks and kind of the admin side that kind of comes to it and then it's the communication with kind of the next layer down of who's working and what and the people happy and do we need to move people around and kind of this the I think communications I probably don't do enough of it I know I don't do enough of it but um I'm pretty an open person so it's mm. kind of really what you see is kind of what you get and so it's having those conversations with the team to hopefully they're kind of honest back and and we can work through the demands of the team as it goes yeah, makes sense. And how do you stay close to the team? Do you do one-on-ones or is it group meetings? What is your approach? One-on-ones with my, my direct reports. Skip levels less frequently, but I tend to sit with the team as well. Here it's fixed desks, so kind of closer to sitting with them. At, uh, now, but it was more flexi-desking, so there could be days when you're not, not sitting with the team, but try and always sit with the team just to kind of have those kind of touch points and mm. say hi and say bye in the evening at least. Yeah. <laughs> and it is something that I suppose as a naturally introverted kind of quiet person, especially in the days when you've got lots to do and you just want, just want to sit at my desk and, and get the work done, I have to make the conscious effort to go and, and speak to people because that's so valuable to do and I enjoy doing it as well it's just when there's there's high demands of there's a lot on my to-do list or a lot of deadlines to meet just making it a conscious effort to go and speak to people more say how you're doing just not work related as well just as important so I think it's something I probably don't do as enough but yeah that the team meetings for more the formal aspects of business awareness what's going on and then what kind of aligning what their work is doing to the vision of the team and the strategy and then kind of an informal we have an informal call it viz of the week once a week on a, on a Friday just getting together and people to 
either showcase something that's kind of just nothing work related they just kind of worked on it or it's not their work they just found it online or it is their work and it's an awareness of what's else going on in the business I think one of my observations coming into this team was that we're all kind of working in silos we kind of get get the work get the job done move on it's kind of let's just build the awareness of what other people are working on Um, because I think that one that the business acumen kind of learning what's going on in the business is important too I suppose it's my kind of motivation anyway I'm kind of curious nosy person so I kind of like to know what people are working on and assume others enjoy that aspect too but it's a bit of fun just to make sure that we get together and have a bit of learning on the um, things but also kind of knowledge share as well definitely that having that continual learning i think is is really something that data scientists really value it's a really good way to do it to have it as a flexible session that's booked on a weekly basis but the topic can be so varied you don't have to submit things or you can just be an observer or you can kind of present and, and take part and you tend to get the same people kind of that, that submit and gently kind of try and encourage other people or you know your next tactic yeah just to, to get together to, to kind of make sure we're speaking to each other and not just about the current problems and what's going on something i don't think i probably do enough is um celebrate the wins or the successes of what we've done we kind of i often think analytics teams are the kind of the quiet quiet little mice in the team you get a lot done and they kind of probably take i swear take a lot of shit on <laughs> from the business and just absorb it and do it but it's kind of make the business aware of what we're doing it's, there's a balancing act to it but that was one of my biggest learnings as as a leader is your role as a salesman and you've got to sell the team sell the sell what the team's doing sell the benefits and just sell the awareness as well it's, it doesn't come naturally to me and I kind of still kind of learn that but it's, it's important to kind of to get people's awareness of what we're doing and, and that's easier than when people are asking for things and you're having to say no and pe- often people's reaction is well why are you not doing it it's like well we're actually working on other things and if they can see there's a throughput of lots of other work they're kind of more forgiving and kind of why we're not working on that urgent thing right now yes. it's not necessarily the most urgent thing going on and how do you go about selling the the team and the work to the rest of the organization so we have um, company-wide business updates where everyone gets in a room and we, it's on a monthly basis, talk about the different business units and what's going on. Previously, it was the BI team. Uh, it's, uh, with my role, it's kind of changed as function as also insights, but there wasn't a, a BI present representation at the business updates. So it's kind of finance areas, um, all the different business units areas, but not we weren't necessarily a business unit. Yeah, same about um, place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, hang on a minute, I want to have a little voice at the table. So it's kind of just muscling my way in and having a say there and trying to make it a bit fun as well so that people remember <laughs> your one and it's memorable. But it's, yeah, first of all, it's getting a seat at the table. And so look, I was lucky in before I joined the team, so my role's a, a new role. The BI team was lining into finance area to not having a seat on the table that way. So I now being on the exec team, I get a, a seat at the table. So the kind of the team's privilege now is kind of, there's less filters. You've got like, I'm here to kind of showcase what you're doing. So try and summarize what we're doing. Obviously, it's kind of choosing the one, you know, when I bombard and then it kind of gets blindness to what we're doing. So yes. it's about making sure that I'm I'm raising the concern when there's something happening. So when there's a, a data warehouse outage, which happened the other week, that we're actually talking about it at the exec team. So we're making sure where that's going on, which then filters to the strategy conversation earlier. So again, well, I'm not saying we do, but if it was to say move to the cloud there's kind of there's part of a there's a reason there you've kind of there's awareness rather than things things just happen and people don't know about it because it doesn't necessarily get raised to the right level so it's getting your, your foot at the your seat at the table and how do you prioritize the work out of everything that could be done plus everything that gets asked to be done how do you pick what should be done yeah, that's a very good question. And I think I learn every time I do a prioritization. It's the combination of business needs 
there's always the people that shout the loudest that want their work and it's equally you don't want to make those people unhappy but I don't want to necessarily give them what they want all the time mm. because it's not a, I don't know, like a reward a child for bad behavior and Correct. give them what they want so yeah. but equally you've got to be aware of those people as well because they can be the ones that spread the negative word about you and kind of they're not doing a great job they're not doing this I want this and so it's a bit of a, a balancing thing act there but um generally my prioritizations are First, kind of separating to quick wins versus longer term work. So, if something that can just be done, you kind of should just do it. But you've got to balance that with if you have a lot of things that can just be done, then you're never doing <laughs> the bigger pieces. So, that's kind of a full being asked on the team to just be aware of that. And it's kind of a bit of an expectation that if something is just a, a quick thing, then do it. But for them to kind of manage their workflows to make sure they're not doing a lot of quick wins. Then the business opportunities to kind of what's the business priorities, whether that's driving revenue, reducing attrition, pain points, etc. So, what's the business? priority um looking at the effort to build and kind of also what what i think is going to make the kind of biggest improvement for us as a business in terms of the kind of the data analytics strategy I suppose when i say that the um like the saying the prioritize for me prioritizing the self-service is important now and probably mm. didn't do that earlier because it was important for me to kind of i was learning what the business kind of needs and then i can help build the self-serve but now's the time to prioritize that over the ad hoc um, there's also an element of what does the, the team members want to learn so if i've had a request if someone wants to learn segmentation and it's like well i might prioritize that task because they, they can do that but it is it's it's a matrix of um business priorities business needs demands and um development opportunities quick wins long-term strategies and then you always get the senior leader that wants something that exactly. <laughs> just disrupts the whole thing and what excites you about your job or this field? What keeps you so passionate and engaged? Yeah, I think a few things. That, like, I've always kind of enjoyed the problem-solving aspect, and, mm. and that's what you kind of do in the data science space, especially the problems where people think that can't be solved. It's kind of the competitive side of me <laughs> likes a bit of the challenge. But it's the, the, the seeing the results as well and kind of seeing people make the change. I think the fraud was easy in the early days because you could see that you could actually quantify it as well. Kind of by the end of the day or the week, you could say, I've saved X amount of dollars for the business because they put in those rules. So seeing something in production, in action kind of happening is kind of a little bit of a, a kind of a buzz. Kind of, I did that. It's probably harder now as it's more tenuous to kind of what um, the impact to, to the real world. And But yeah, the, the problem solving aspect is leaning. Then I like to see people learn and grow as well and develop the team. One of the things that when I was looking for a job after leaving the bank, taking a break and coming back, the, the other thing um, I was looking at was also I kind of realized that working in the, the contracting when I was going back to being a do almost like back to being a senior analyst, kind of doing the work was kind of fun because it was like, oh, I've still got it. <laughs> but um, I kind of missed the strategy aspects yeah. and kind of the shaping the business so not necessarily just the analytics um, area and the team and seeing what we can do there but how can we grow the business and make the business better having those kind of the exec team meetings kind of discussing what's the direction of the business and i i like those kind of the, the, the strategy sessions why do you think that is i probably feel a bit arrogant saying it but kind of feeling like i do have um an opinion and a voice that should be heard and i'm a big believer that data science teams and data analytics teams we're the smartest kind of people and we're not just destined to be in a data analytics data science team we can spread across the areas of the business and the businesses will be much better for it if we were obviously very biased and it's kind of a little bit of exposure to that and also yeah. a little bit of proof kind of that we can as well by challenging the kind of the questions and asking the questions of this kind of skill sets of asking why the curious kind of nature is it the right problem to be solved all those things that you work on in a little data analytics kind of consulting kind of assignment almost 
most applies to the bigger um, the business. Yes. And I think surprisingly, so from when I've worked in business, going from the question kind of what did I learn from uni to business, it's kind of realizing that a lot of those questions don't necessarily always happen. A lot of businesses can just, business units just, just run along and you kind of need those check-in points. I don't know if this knows why I like the strategy, but I kind of enjoy those kind of the, yeah, being, being part of the bigger piece and yeah, getting the data analytics recognized to be part of those conversations as well. And it makes such a huge difference. That's really good. I think as well, the, I don't know if we're a different breed for a better word where they kind of think about the detail kind of aspects as well, but then you can apply it to the, the business knowledge or whether the kind of the fraud background of kind of realizing kind of the, the cynical side of that things can go wrong and what should you do if things go wrong. So it's not just about if you kind of, if there's a project to, to build a new product or, yeah. or something, it's often kind of thinking, well, what should we do? Or it's like, well, have you thought about doing this because that could go wrong? Or what about exception kind of reporting there? Or if, what if we're asking for a third party to provide us data? What if they don't provide us data? Mm. A lot of the time I think things are thought about in the best case scenario and so it's kind of those questions as well in terms of the what if scenarios as well that's a really good one because that's a mistake that I make too often just being overly positive yeah. and thinking it's <laughs> going to be great compliment each other well. I'm <laughs> like a half glass a glass half full it's good yeah. we should have this discussion yeah. more often <laughs> no that's really great so I'd like to change tact a little bit mm -hmm. and ask you I guess more general questions to get advice for yep. the listeners what do you think makes a great data scientist so I think you've got to have the curiosity. Why is this happening? And kind of to do, don't take things on face value, kind of ask why and just make sure that they're kind of checking the curious nature. I think that the natural ability to do programming or coding is part of that. And by natural abilities, I think there's a tendency of people wanting to get into data science to learn it. And so kind of learn coding as a process, but it's not a process. It's not a recipe A to B. Yes, there's recipe aspects to it, but you've got to naturally understand why or the logic behind things and why things are happening so that if things do go wrong, you can fix it or you kind of know why. And I kind of relate it to my musical background. I am not musical <laughs> whatsoever. Absolutely appalling at it. And I just never forget it. And when I was at school, yeah. we had music lessons and you had to write a song on a keyboard and I would learn it by just memorize what I had to do. I couldn't feel it within me. And so I had to memorize it and it just wasn't for me. It was forced. And then, and that's kind of the coding aspect. It's kind of, you see, like with people just can have music and they can do it. I don't have music, can't do it, but it's kind of the, it applies to the coding. If you can do it, you kind of, it comes naturally. You, you kind of got the curiosity. So don't necessarily force it. If you're forcing it, mm. it's not necessarily for you, but it's being able to understand when you're forcing it versus when when it's just part of the learning hurdles of learning it because you can learn it if it's in your kind of natural ability to learn it it's don't force it because you never you're not going to be a great data scientist necessarily if you're forcing it and it's not a bad thing as either there's, there's other things you're probably good at um but i think for the time being anyway coding is going to be a big part of the data science job so natural ability coding i kind of probably always lean a bit towards the softer skills after that and more the continuous learning kind of attitude that you can always learn from mm. using them read new things or read other people's work and, and always the, the willingness to always want to learn attitude as well mm. having attitude and behavior so people are a bit energized by coming to work want to do a good thing open mindset to kind of like how can we do things kind of can do attitude kind of things it's yes we can do this no can't do that locker move on it's like um right so how can we do it 
Yeah, because the right attitude, the right mindset, it literally requires zero skills, mm -hmm. like zero training. And it makes such a huge difference if you add it on top of technical capabilities, soft skills, and right attitude. The amount of times I've kind of heard if people have been to something, whether it's kind of a, a conference that may be tenuous to their job or a business-wide update, kind of where she's kind of talking about something far removed from what they do in their day job and go, how was that? Oh, that was boring, didn't learn anything. It's like, but you could always learn from it. Yes, I might. Some parts might be boring, but you may take a snippet. So it's kind of don't have the closed mindset. Kind of, it's what can you learn? I'm not saying I get yes. overly excited by all the <laughs> things I go to, but yeah. it's kind of if you go into it that I'm not going to learn anything, it's going to be boring. Then don't bother going. Exactly, and I love that because I'm the same. Absolutely terrible. What do you think makes a great data science leader? I suppose the bias kind of side of me thinks everything that you should be for a data scientist because yes. it's kind of a, they had all questions of technical leader versus people leader. I remember having a conversation probably about seven years ago now with a previous people leader where, where they were saying, oh, but Sally, you don't have to be a technical person to be a people leader. And I was like, well, you have to be a technical. And yes, I do agree in yeah. a lot of ways, but uh -huh. I think to be a good data science leader is you've got to have a good technical background too. And that's why you can, you can walk the walk as well as talk the yeah. talk. You can call bullshit kind of things. If someone says it's gone, oh, it's going to take me five weeks to do it. Yeah, really, I could do that in like <laughs> half the time. So, yeah. and also, but the, the respect factor as well is the if they kind of respect you, kind of think it motivates the team a little bit more. But also, I can get on tools and help people out as well. If there's a big demand, or if there's a lot of people off sick, or if someone just wants advice, I don't have to call on someone. Yes, there's times when I don't, I don't know everything, so I do have to say, oh, you might have to so and so, Luke knows that we can go ask him or uh, research it. But I kind of it's like the triage. I can do the first part of that and help them out. So kind of yeah, everything is as a data scientist, and then probably the from my experience and the, the lessons that I'm still learning is that salesman kind of aspect is that you've got to put the team on show and advocate for what they're doing and, and what a great job they're doing and then the, the networking side as well kind of speaking to people building up the networks to help build the contacts for the team as well so when I can't do things I can go I do know other people to do things plus it then helps grow the ideas of what to do for the team as well but so yeah, the, the biggest add-on I'd probably have from my learning experiences that the salesman aspect to a leader and selling the, what the team's doing not in a way that compromises your values as what I call some kind of salesman in Correct. terms of um, being a little dishonest but it's kind of how just to advocate what the team's doing super important for the team to get the recognition that it yeah. deserves and yeah. keep the motivation high as well yeah well yeah because how exciting when a, when a team member kind of sees their work in production or getting recognition for something you can see the little buzz and the excitement and yes. it's so important to kind of do that because yeah again i think they're kind of quiet little mice they do a really good job often really helpful often too helpful <laughs> but it's need they need the time on the, the stage what do you see as the current challenges or the main challenge or challenges in the industry right now? From a people side, I think there's a lot of buzz and interest in people in the, the data uh, science space. I mean, having Melbourne have the biggest or one of the biggest data science media people is like 5,000 in there shows us a demand, but is it the demand for the right reason? So how can we make sure that we're not overselling the job, but we're also kind of educating and training and getting the right people in the jobs as well? I think there's a stage kind of when, when I was kind of getting into industry, no one really knew what data analytics was. Data science wasn't really a word. Now it's a big buzz. It's getting a lot of the highlights. So there's a lot of noise to filter through when you're kind of applying for jobs. But yes. I think it's really good as well because it, it means that there's people interested and there's a spark. But how can we train, educate, get the pipeline of talent really good and upskill them? 
for me, it's kind of one to watch is the education kind of aspect. There's new data science degrees coming on board. There's a lot nice. of online courses. There's a lot of, if you haven't applied the theory to the business world, it's it's a lot different. So kind of people, especially people's expectations can be, oh, this is easy. You just run this line of code. The data's <laughs> there. The model is going to be great. Does it on its own. Yeah. <laughs> so there's then a bit of re-expectation setting you've got to do in the business. I think in, in the product space, when, when I was working in, in that space, there's a lot of talk in terms of millennials. What do we do to keep the millennials happy and, and them engaged in, in product space and kind of products and kind of apply that to the data science space? And it's kind of, if you think, we, we talked about millennials kind of wanting instant gratification or the experiences and things. And, and like we talked earlier, there's the whole, actually, you're going to have to find some data, manipulate the data, and do that kind of, in my mind, is questioning, do we have to? Like, how can we adapt to the millennials? generation to I believe as well that probably contradictory in some ways to what my previous comment about the coding but I don't think you should always have to do the nitty-gritty coding there's some coding like the self-serve coding kind of tools in some ways so kind of taking away a lot of the headache and a lot of the pain points of writing that so how can we adapt the technologies to that but then not lose the technical and the the danger that a little bit of knowledge can go wrong but kind of use it for the good to speed up the work that we need to do to get the output it's Mm. can we or should we I don't know. It's kind of if we take it too far, do you lose the ability of knowing the data, making sure we've got the right data, making sure it's used in the right way? Or can you remove that pain point but still have all the things you want? Exactly. That's an interesting one. Yeah. And what about the future challenges for the industry? What are some things that you see coming up that we'll have to be dealing with? I think like a lot of spaces, a lot of the future challenges are going to be our current challenges. It's like in the banking space, we talked about when's cash going to go and cash is still here. Yeah. <laughs> We're finally trying to think, get rid of the checks, but cash is still. So I think a lot of the pain points, challenges will remain the same. So the mm. fact that to, to fail, it's okay. And it's yeah. not necessarily failure. It's learning and making mistakes and developing and educating businesses' mindsets that that's okay. The kind of the current kind of where it's increasing at the moment, kind of the use of data as data gets more widely accepted within in business and kind of part of the day-to-day running of it and using it more wildly the making sure it's getting used correctly all the, the regulation environments that are kind of happening and the focus on what we're doing and then all the autonomous cars and the ethics kind of aspect kind of things as it as more things like that happen it's the in some ways we've been privileged in the past of using data and getting away with it and there'll be more and more focus on how we're, we're doing it so the challenge of and i think that's good in a lot of ways but how can we do it to make sure there's not too much red tape as well sometimes it's when is it right to do it and no doubt we, there needs to be kind of rules in place and make sure we understand how to use it, what we're using it and why. They're not going too far so we can't use anything. And I think the, yeah, as I see now kind of a lot more roles for data governance going on the job boards. And I think that, that trend will kind of continue as, as businesses want to get their ducks in a row. And then I think the challenges for business will be is making sure that's not just a tick the box function and it's, it's actually doing what it's meant to be doing. Yes. And what do you see as that function? What do you think that function should be doing, the data governance piece? So ultimately, it's kind of making sure we're using data for the right reasons. Well, there's many things. Making sure we're using data for the right reasons. And as a business sense, making sure we don't get into trouble and keeping us in check to not that we try to do things to get us into trouble, but to give that conscious kind of thought to make sure are we using data in the right way. But I also think like I say, everyone should do everything part of the job. Data mm. governance is part of everyone's role, not yes. just the data analytics team. But everyone's using data within the business. So how are we using it? So that there's many aspects in terms of the quality, understanding the quality and how we're using it, the the governance, the kind of the controls, who has access to what and how we're using it. 
it's a lot also in the, the legal teams at the moment and kind of think when that can happen, it's more on the tick the box kind of exercise. And I think that's, that's always going to be needed too because it kind of makes sure you've got the framework and you've got the right framework in there. But then it's applying it from a legal document to the day job as well. And so what you often find as well is when you've got the legal document is you're doing a lot of it anyway, but it probably exposes some kind of gaps. Oh yeah, do we need to be a little bit tighter in those controls as well? So I, I see the, the governance side as a, a way to make sure that we're thinking about data and use in data in the right way, protecting our customers, protecting our shareholders, but then make, yeah, making sure we don't use their data in the wrong ways. They've trusted us with some data. We can't just use it as we want. I think it's a lot of things in one is data governance. It's and it's also changing so quickly because it is, as you said, like it is such a hot area at the moment that a lot of companies are thinking about about what it looks like yeah. for them. That's yeah, really and I'm good. Still constantly learning on that. What are we? Well, what should we be doing in that kind of space? And yeah, as the kind of the team grows and what we do, and as we've got contracts with different businesses and mm. things, just it's we've got to we've got to do the right thing. And we've got to make sure people know what the right thing as well is. That's really good. This has been fantastic. Amazing. I only have one last question for mm -hmm. you. And that is, what is a piece of advice that you would like to leave the listeners with that it can be something for them to consider as they go through their careers as data scientists? Something to keep in mind, something to focus on, or maybe a mistake to avoid? What would be something that you'd like to leave people with? Well, as we touched on a few things, kind of like the open mindset being probably a big one. Uh, if you kind of get comfortable being uncomfortable kind of is one of the kind of things get out of your comfort zone and kind of keep pushing yourself it's in the kind of the business talk they talk about the the comfort zone out of your comfort zone and then the danger zone so it's making sure you're not out of the danger zone but you're not in the danger zone rather but you're not in the comfort zone as well so constantly kind of pushing yourself where you'll learn and grow more i yeah. probably got I probably could go on a few times with yeah I think probably touching on the open mindset one a little bit more as well in as a personal example I was looking at where my manager um, put me on, on it gave me the opportunity to work two days a week kind of as a semi-secondment within the strategy team and kind of just took it on as part of the course and kind of did it but it's not realizing why necessarily at the time but being open-minded to kind of do it and go it's not necessarily part of my job but go on I'll do that and the strategy teams often have to do a lot of research understand a problem and then synthesize it into a kind of a condensed concise and um, easy to understand um, presentation for senior leaders to review and and we were working on a what's the future of, of payments um, going to look like and it soon wasn't after the senior leader especially on this one kind of helped me to understand how they go through that research process to then write the presentations in an easy to understand way and I've still got probably learnings to do that but kind of just the tips on mm. kind of a how to write an executive summary to kind of highlight the, the key things versus the titles of slides being more about what the content is and the, the content is just to support the evidence point of the slides rather than being a boring sales by day or something it's kind of more punchy and so I really learned a lot from that experience as it is the keeping an open mind that you can always learn from other aspects probably the other bit of advice will be about yourself probably my, my personal kind of story in, in that one would be probably about three or four years ago now I was probably having a conversation with my people leader at, at the time and having the development conversations of um what do you want to do next and I was like I don't want your job it wasn't good enough for his job. It's kind of always, you know, been in the role however many years, but kind of, you know, he was awesome. Great at his job, knew a lot of things and there's no way near. I was ready for that. As the weeks kind of progressed, kind of came apparent that he was going to go on us a comment elsewhere and his role became available. And then I can't just start to think that actually if someone else gets that, I'm probably getting the competitive side to me again. I'll get Love a little it. bit jealous. <laughs> 
probably think I can do that. And so I kind of backed myself and said, yeah, I do want your job. And then like a couple of weeks later, I was in that job. Um, so in it for us a comment and then in there for two years in the end before I left. But had I not done that and kind of made that conscious decision to back myself, I wouldn't be here where I am today because it was a big step up I think going from the manager to the, to the head of role it's um it's kind of the, the first proper step where I've noticed the change in in kind of promotions where it was a, a bigger difference rather than an actual kind of progression so mm. a massive learning curve probably still think I'm way out my depths kind of the, the imposter syndrome kind of aspects but had I not been forced to kind of back myself and, and get in that position then I wouldn't have learned what I have and there today so yeah always back yourself that is a fantastic note to end on. That was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for doing oh, the interview. Thank you interview. for inviting. My pleasure. This has been wonderful. Oh. Like really, really amazing. So thank oh. you so much for, for sharing all that. Thank you. Boost your data science career with skills that count. James Cook University's 100% online Master of Data Science is one of Australia's fastest. Study while you work and focus on just one subject at a time. Visit online.jcu.edu.au for more information. As data scientists, we're always looking for ways to gather more data and to understand our customers better. Firebox do just that. With Firebox, you can easily create a quiz for your app, website, or blog. These quizzes are used to generate leads, educate, or engage your customers. Check them out today. That's Firebox with a Y, so F-Y-R-E-B-O-X.com. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.